China is not going to drive the world or define our future. And the reason it's going to be the U.S., from my perspective, is because the U.S. handles the single most important commodity asset in human civilization today, and that is information. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 271 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Emmanuel Daniel to the show. Emmanuel is the award-winning founder of The Asian Banker with offices in Singapore, Beijing, Dubai, along with representatives from around the world. He's also a writer an entrepreneur and a consultant and was recognized as a global top 50 fintech influencer in 2021 and 2022. And today we're going to be diving into his new book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here to guide you, to empower you along your own journey of growth at your bank, at your credit union, or at your fintech. Welcome to the show, Emmanuel. It is so good to share time with you today. Jim, even before we started, we were, you know, we were jiving so well. So we've got lots of ground to cover. We really do. And before we talk about the financialization of everything and and maybe, you know, get into your book, The Great Transition, I always like to start the show off on a positive note. What is going well for you right now, personally or professionally? It is always your pick to get started. Well, I just got into Beijing. Uh, you know, I was I spent seven months of last year, 2022, uh, in the U.S., uh, in li- uh, different parts of the U.S., and that was my first trip back uh, after the pandemic. Um, and so I got to see the U.S. from an outsider looking back in and understanding what the U.S. has become uh, and what the U.S. is to the rest of the world. What the U.S. has become today um, and this is, uh, you know, just top of the mind take on this, um, has, is that it's been commoditized by big business. Mm. Uh, when, when I, whether I'm in New York or Seattle uh, or San Diego, you know, wherever I was, or you know, Miami, <clears throat> what I saw was big business had, had commoditized everyday life in the U.S. And why do I say that? Because I come from other parts of the world where, the GDP growth was anything between 5% and, and 12 to 13%. Uh, in China, it was that for like 10 years in a, in a, in a straight row. Uh, where, where these are countries which generated wealth, uh, where people became wealthy very quickly, uh, and, and then settled into lifestyles with good infrastructure and all that in, in a very short period of time. Uh, it was a shocking development. And I, as the founder of The Asian Banker, started in 1996 as an excuse, as a magazine, uh, to go out there and visit every uh, country in, in the Asia-Pacific region and to have an agenda, which is financial services. And why financial services? 
because banking, I call, I call banking the cathedral industry, uh, the industry that uh, you have to something to do with it from the time that you're born to the time you die. Yes. Uh, you know, you land in any country, meet the chairman or CEO of any major bank, and you're actually meeting the most important people in that country. Uh, you know, and then today we, we've shortened the name to Tab Insights to do research and stuff. And we have an office in Dubai and in London. Um, so we've become sort of global. And in terms of tracking the development of the banking industry, uh, we've looked for common themes. Um, and the funny, funny thing in the, in the process in which I've built my business is that because we were covering Asia so well, that we've had very interesting figures out of the U.S. that was interested in what we did. So I count among my friends, Barney Frank, uh, who wrote the Dot Frank Act, as a very, very personal friend. I, I stay in his house. I, you know, we, we gel together. We travel together and so on. And then we've got Dick Kovacevic, who, who built, um, you know, Wells Fargo, uh, which is, you know, no matter what you have to say about Wells Fargo today, uh, it, it is one of the major institutions in the U.S. And, and like that, I can rattle off names in the U.S. whom I've come to know because they were interested in Asia. In other words, I've had access to them, which an average person in the U.S. wouldn't have because in the U.S. it's a crowded field. Yes. But, uh, you know, they wanted to be here. I spent weeks with them and then it works back into what's happening in the U.S. So when I say I'm global, I work backwards. I, I, I work from the field and then, uh, you know, back into the home country in that way. Uh, so if you ask me what I'm sort of uh, wrapping my mind around a lot is the leadership of the U.S. going forward. Now, I'm the one person who will tell you that, no, China is not going to drive the world or, uh, or define our future. And the reason it's going to be the U.S., from my perspective, is because the U.S. handles the single most important commodity asset in human civilization today, and that is information. Yes. Uh, it doesn't necessarily handle it well uh, because it's liberal, it's non-defined, it allows information to shape society and uh, shape opinion and so on. It looks incredibly dysfunctional. But information is the asset that defines civilization today. I want to pause you here and I want to roll back on a few things that I think are really important to maybe get some context around. And when I look at context, context is just one part of perspective. Perspective is gained through context and framing. And I think you're bringing a very important perspective here because your context of the world, your frame of the world is just a little bit different. It's just how we see things. And, you know, when you, you mentioned Barney Frank, um, he provided one of the Fords for your book, Transition, which is the great transition. The personalization of finance is here. And this is ties closely into data. It also ties closely into commoditization, which is something that you, you mentioned in your opening thoughts. And when you think about commoditization, you know, we might think, well, that's digitization. Digitization was, was really the, the, the tipping point here. And Peter Diamandis, you know, he's written about his six Ds and you've got digitization that leads to democratization, that leads to demonetization, et cetera. And so now that ties us back into this point of data and, and your perspective, it's the financialization of everything. 
So where does data and how we handle and are responsible with data, like you said, that's a key part to, to consider here. How does all this play into the larger narrative U.S., China, because like you said, you're, you're bringing a different perspective here, which I appreciate. Well, if you go back to first principles and your podcast, your community thinks a lot about digitization. Anything that can be digitized can be financialized. Yes. It's just a simple. Data can be digitalized. Data can be financialized. Uh, and when you financialize everything, uh, you will find several things happening. So I say this in my book, okay? Uh, actually, I, I refer to someone else, a historian, who, who pointed out that mankind tried to tame uh, every major beast in the world above 100 kilograms and above uh, and only managed to tame 17 of them. So what we're going to see happening in, in financialization is that uh, we'll try to financialize everything, and then we'll find that we can only financialize some things, mm. and, and some things will not be financialized. But for the next 100 years, uh, the world will go through a process of, because data defines everything we do, uh, we'll try to financialize as many things as possible. You know, and the reason we've not been able to tame every beast above 100 kilo, kilograms, uh, you know, what's 100 kilo? Two, 200 two, pounds and above. 220. 220 pounds and above uh, is that uh, there are economic reasons. Uh, the reason the lion and the tiger didn't get tamed is because it was economically not feasible. Um, you know, that's that's the only reason. It's not because they were wild or any of, you know, any of those reasons. Now, uh, I think it was in 2014 that uh, Jeff Emmels uh, said that GE, uh, which was a major manufacturer, will no longer generate its income from manufacturing. It would generate its income more from data. Mm. And, and the way it's going to do that is to put lots of more sensors uh, in everything that it does, uh, generate the data, and then make that available to its customers. The Internet of Things coming online now. So just following his thoughts, the Internet of Things is going to generate uh, that amount of data, uh, and we are all going to try to financialize uh, that data. Now, by the way, because of this ability to financialize data, that actually gives an uptake on the U.S. economy. I think that there are some analysts who say that the U.S. economy right now is like 19, 20, 21 trillion dollars, you know, and it can become, you know, much, much larger than that. So the thing is that uh, it becomes larger because of its financialization, not because of any underlining asset or underlining ability to, to manufacture stuff. Now, that creates problems because the more divorced you are from any underlining asset, uh, you become ephemeral you know, economy, meaning that a lot of the assets are traded assets, it's uh, financialized assets, uh, it's markets, it's, um, you know, and, and, and so on. So that's a whole new universe that's being created that require new rules by which we interact with each other and so on. Just like people feel stressed about money, we understand digital growth can also feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming. But it doesn't have to feel this way for you because you can join the Digital Growth University to gain clarity through education, to overcome the fear of the unknown, 
Build your team's courage with a growth strategy to eliminate the fear of change and increase your confidence with coaching to remove the fear of failure. Visit digitalgrowth.com university to apply. Well, I appreciate the idea of framing this conversation, once again, perspective around assets, because historically up to maybe year 2000, that was maybe the beginning of this, maybe it was 1994 when the internet hit mass consciousness, assets were viewed as something that they were tangible. Um, you know, in, in, in banking, you know, you looked at your asset liability, uh, you've, you've got assets on the book, well, that can be backed up by a tangible thing, a building, for example, a piece of machinery. But now when you're talking about digitization and data and financialization, assets are becoming intangible. And I know there are some concerns around data and privacy, but you're looking here that, you know, this idea of the financialization of everything it's opening the doors to decentralized finance. You and, and that's where you know things like blockchain come online, cryptocurrency. How does all of this blockchain, for example, play into this narrative of data and responsibility of data? Well, no, before we go there, I, I want to I want to carry your viewers with us, okay? Now, in 1984, at the time of the first banking crisis after Bretton Woods. Okay, Bretton Woods ended in 1971 to 1973, uh, and it took 10 years for the world, the first uh, U.S. banking crisis. They call it the savings and loans crisis. Um, at that time, yep. if you looked at the balance sheet of any bank, uh, it was it, they carried actual mortgages, right? And then there were several other crises that happened um, subsequent to that. 1984, 1987 was the securities crisis. The banks were carrying more securities mm-hmm. than they were mortgages. By 1994, the Mexican crisis, um, there's a lot of trading assets on the balance sheets of the banks. And then 1997 was the Asian crisis. Uh, it was Asian banks uh, borrowing in dollars uh, rather than you know in their domestic currencies. And when the dollar rates went up, their the costs of borrowing went up. And then by the time you reach 2008, it was about you know the trading banks. Not it wasn't the main street banks in the U.S. It was the the Wall Street banks that carried a lot more derivatives of underlying assets. So what I'm saying in my book is that by the time we reach 2014 and and then 2023, which is where we are today, if you look into the balance sheet of any banks, they carry more intangible assets uh, and trading assets than they carry actual assets with underlining value. Okay, so I want to carry your your viewers with us, uh, uh, you know, on this journey. So now the question is, uh, what will the global economy look like? What will the banking industry look like? Now, parallel to the development of the balance sheet of actual banks uh, was the development of digital assets. So 2007, uh, 2008 was uh, when uh, Bitcoin uh, became a reality. Now, whatever you think about Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, it's a genie that you can't put back into the bag. Okay, uh, it's um, you know it went up to a trillion dollars. It it, it now is has fallen back now uh, to about 800 billion dollars. But it's not the valuation that dis- decides on the the validity of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. It's actually the utility of it. 
it the, the sheer energy um if you take any crypt, cryptocurrency you take solana or tezos 300000 developers working in an op- open source uh, ecosystem to create functionalities you can't beat that yeah. okay now don't even start talking about the crypto winter and so on just think about the sheer energy that's going into the development of utilities now we don't see the real life utilities coming on stream yet but this whole thing called decentralized finance it's actually a shadow banking system which is mirroring what banks do um you know and 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 trying to create a real economy around that but that's where we're heading right now uh you know so 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 that's how we have to read uh, all the developments have taken that have taken place so far and then i'm making some conclusions from there but let's take the thought to to where it is right now uh, on these points you know uh, and then and then build it from there and uh, i've got a few things to say from there let's continue down this and and maybe also as as we're going down this journey together when you think about decentralization when you think about the way that you framed it kind of a shadow banking system how could this play into a potential financial crisis and i know one of the things that you think about here is that it could be driven by public perception and digital communication what's the danger if you just track the balance sheet of the bank of any bank and and your bankers know this very very well because they know their own balance sheet uh and how it's morphed since 1984 to what it is today uh increasingly the balance sheet carries ephemeral assets uh and it will continue to build those ephemeral assets in fact last year the bank for international settlements put down the ground rules for which central banks can now carry cryptocurrencies uh on their balance sheet and that's easily 3.5 trillion dollars worth of assets sitting on the balance sheets of uh, you know governments of uh, central banks around the world now as that ecosystem gets developed the the rules by which these ephemeral assets because you know let's just agree that you know cryptocurrencies don't have an underlying valuation or asset supporting them right and and they're used for things like gaming work you know utilities and so on uh and when you think about nfts and so on all of these comprise an ecosystem or an economy that is based entirely on perception which is yes. what you and i believe to be of value even of a security which where for which the underlying value is the is the business or the profitability of a actual business so we've right. entered that economy today and just as 2008 uh were global trading banks you know getting into trouble because of you know uh, derivatives which were twice removed from underlying assets uh the next banking crisis or the next economic crisis uh will be based on even more ephemeral assets and there the rules of engagement changes dramatically you know there are books like that say this time is different no it's not different it's based on an underlying asset no it's not uh we've actually moved on um, you know and and uh we need new rules by which uh we understand the phenomenons that we are creating that is a key takeaway 
leadership keeps going back to the things that they know. That is, the, and you, we've used this word a couple times now, it's perception, it's the context and the framing. We need new rules. What can a leader who is listening to this podcast do to gain a new perception of the new realities going forward into the future? Because we know in banking, you know, people fear what they don't know. People fear what they don't understand. I think that's why the work that you're doing is so important because it's providing clarity. It's providing, hey, here are some things to think about. And but but knowledge alone is not power. It's being able to apply what you're learning going forward into the future it's the knowing that leads to the growing and so what can a listener do to continue to increase their knowledge in a world that is changing at an exponential rate because i know and i've heard some leaders say this like i I, i've been doing this for far too long to learn something new today and i'm like well that's a very dangerous place to be what's your take on this idea of knowledge and knowing big business has a way of distorting the future uh, of not taking us you know, an, on a linear path to where it should be taking us. Uh, they try to reinforce their role as an intermediary, all of that. I'm not saying that the future that I'm thinking about where it's decentralized, uh, where, you know, where assets are ephemeral and so on, is going to be a straight path. There's going to be a lot mm. of distortions uh, as we get there. So one of the distortions we, we need to put our finger on and deal with is the whole question of intermediary, which is, you know, what's the, the role of intermediaries going to be uh, as we get into a digital future? Now, what I've done in my book is I've provided some guidelines or some, some dimensions by which we can uh, perceive the future. Now, one of the things I've, I've sort of figured out and I appreciated from someone I learned from, uh, his name is David Ronfeld, and I, I put his uh, chart into the book, which is that he said, that uh, civilizations move uh, from one phase to another, uh, and there are essentially four phases, uh, tribal to uh, institutional, from institutional to markets, and then markets to networks. Now, he wrote this paper in 1994, uh, when the most developed technology was a fax machine. And he had not um, you know, got sight of the network world that we today have sight of. What I took away from his paper, and his paper had nothing to do with finance, but when I superimposed how finance was evolving, I could see that, that what we're dealing with today, the rules of finance that are current to the markets economy, we need to pay attention to that. The rules are in place. So when you have a Warren Buffett or a Charlie Munger saying that crypto is all fake and you need to look at the underlying uh, business around it and so on, uh, they're not wrong because uh, they are they exist and they operate within the markets economy, um, you know. And there's a new phenomenon that's evolving, which is the network economy, for which you know the Warren Buffetts of the world are not the purveyors. They you know you you need new sets of rules. You need new sets of eyes to see uh, what the rules are, rules of engagement are in the network economy. So in the network economy, for example, and this is what uh, David Ronfell says, and I, I, I borrow his ideas into my book, and I say that, um, you know, in the network economy, the crime is not fraud, uh, which is, you know, what we see today uh, in terms of securities fraud. Um, you know, what, what Sam Bankman-Fried did 
uh, with the securities fraud in his uh, token uh, was a markets economy fraud, which is, you know, he was fraudulent. Um, whereas if if he was actually operating in the in the network economy, fraud takes on a different dimension. You see, in the network mm. economy, you and I will have access to the same sets of information. So the traditional yep. fraud uh, will not be applicable. In other words, you can see what I'm doing. In fact, that's exactly what happened, which is all of us could see what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing uh, as he was moving his assets from one platform to another and, uh, and Binance mm. had taken, o- taken over some of the assets and then tried to sell it. We, it. All of that was open to everyone. But what we were not able to see, which is a rule in the network economy, is deception, which is that you and I may know exactly what we're doing, but we don't know why we're doing it or why we don't know the intentions behind it. So the, the nature of fraud changes as a result. The point here is that you know, we shouldn't use uh, rules that we are familiar with in the markets economy trying to decipher or to, to define, uh, you know, how the economy would work or how society itself will work in the network phase. I think right there, it's continuously learning. There's a futurist that said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And it's going to continue at an exponential pace. When you think about you know, what was happening like the 1870s, 1880s, rail was starting to grow. But what was going on right next to rail was communication transformation. It was the telegraph. And that telegraph then gave way to telephone, which now leads us all the way back to this idea of the network economy um, here. And so, you know, if you're operating like it was, you know, 1923 in 2023, we know philosophically and intellectually we can't do that. But now going ahead into, say, 2033, there's going to be some major transformations happening. And a lot of people, you know, we got the rise of AI. November 30th, 2022 was when OpenAI released ChatGPT. I think that's like an internet moment right there because it's like, wow, we've been talking about AI. We've been experiencing AI through Alexa and through Siri, but now it's a whole different perspective once again. The context and framing has changed. Now, you know, another area that that I want to dive into is financial inclusion because you believe uh, the biggest lie that you've been told and and where the real responsibility lies is is a great setup here. What's your take on financial inclusion going forward into the future because of all of the disruption that is happening, AI, job displacement, but at the same time, there will be job creation too. Things that, you know, in 1994, think about all the jobs that did not exist then that exist today. I think the same will be true. We're just going to have to continuously reinvent ourselves as individuals, as teams, as organizations, perhaps even at a more of a macro scale. But where does financial inclusion lie into this narrative tied back to data, uh, decentralization, and really the financialization of everything? This question you're asking me about financial inclusion is about the the, the sheer noise there is in the industry uh, and the sheer noise that is in society trying to decipher uh, this journey that we are on. Uh, And because of the noise, we need dimension, we need context to understand what exactly is it that we're dealing with. So this thing about financial inclusion is that I'm saying 
to the people on the in the platform economy, which is the platforms that technology makes available, whether it's social media or or you know supply chain and and all kinds of transaction platforms that exist today, that the whole idea of platforms is to onboard as many users as possible and then to monetize them. What has happened is that we've created a few lies in order to popularize these platforms, to make them look like innocuous. But what we, what we are intended to do, and anyone who is trying to build a digital platform today is trying to onboard uh, thousands, if not millions of customers, users onto that platform. And then uh, the people who are financing the development of those platforms, the venture capitalists and so on, are expecting that you will monetize them at some point. So this whole idea of financial inclusion is predicated on the belief that uh, you must put on uh, whoever, a million poor people on these platforms and then monetize them. You know, the intention is not to create a new reality where where the poor or the disenfranchised become enfranchised or create a a new ecosystem of their own, uh, is to profit from them. Now, why is that important? Because there are different ways which are not platform-centric by which you can uh, empower the poor, the disenfranchised, the unbanked and the underbanked and so on. And they already exist in the analog world. And I say that and I, and I describe them in my book. Um, you know, in Bangladesh, for example, uh, there was a banker and he, he got the Nobel Prize uh, for it, Mohammed Yunus. Um, he just got six women together in villages uh, and lent money to them. You know, and uh, and created an entire economy uh, that today makes Bangladesh uh, on a per capita basis uh, larger than the and than India, its neighbor, uh, because it's a viable uh, ecosystem to build a banking system on. And it had nothing to do with technology, nothing to do with platforms. Uh, it's just being faithful or true to the uh, to the culture or to the local community to the local DNA, as it were, where people are trying to build ecosystems around closed communities uh, that exist outside fiat currencies uh, and, and, uh, and, and technology and all of that. So the whole idea of the platform economy is to onboard as many people as possible and then to monetize them. You know, we can look at it objectively. This is what we're seeing. This is what we're observing. And if this is what we're seeing, this is what we're observing, I think you make a very interesting point around community. Um, And I've been talking a lot on this podcast about building community, empowering community, whether the community be in the physical world, whether the community be the digital world. I mean, there's multiple ways to look at community now. But when we talk about empowering people and looking beyond just the platform of growing a large user base and then monetizing them because then the cycle continues to repeat itself, the future is based upon the decisions that we're making in the present, which we can learn from the the, the, the past, what is the path forward? Where are the great opportunities within the financial services world at a macro level to to maybe write a new chapter going forward into the future here? You know, society is not necessarily benign and, and benevolent in that way. Uh, what I really feel, in fact, I'm depressed after having written this book because, you know, what I see happening is that society is heading towards a very narcissistic 
uh, ecosystem where you know all of us are becoming uh, selfish and um, you know and 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 opportunistic about how we view value, how we view wealth, and and so on. The big question now is that um, you know what kind of society do we want to create? There are ecosystems uh, which are highly protected uh, and closed ecosystems that that work very well uh, for themselves. But by and large, the large economies, whether they are China or or the U.S. or the large, you know, India and Brazil and so on, we are being driven by the need for capital, you know, to onboard as many people as possible uh, and then to monetize them. In that scenario, there are attempts at creating sustainable ecosystems. Now, one of the nice things that I saw happening during the pandemic was uh, this thing called, um, you know, play-to-earn gaming, for example, where local communities were participating in games and then generating income that they traded off for real cash and then went out to buy their, you know, groceries and stuff like that. So so that here they were doing something very digital in this gaming, it, it, ephemeral, yeah. uh, but it resulted in uh, them being able to feed themselves when the entire economy was closed. Um, you know, and it happened in several, um, you know, very, very difficult countries. So this journey towards using digital to uh, generate income that is real. That's what uh, we want to look forward to, uh, but that's still work in progress uh, because it, that model actually mm. had some elements that were not quite well developed. Um, you know, the whole idea of digital economy, the, the whole idea of cryptocurrencies, for example, one of its weakness uh, is that it's based on a kind of a Ponzi element, which is, you know, crypto is only worth something if the value keeps going up. A game is only worth something if the tokens that you generate has a Ponzi element in it. Now, when we move into the network world, the tokens that we use to as as currency in, in transacting in, in the network world may well have no value in it. You know, um, so what we're seeing in the markets world where crypto can go up to $65,000, uh, when we move into the network world, it will be valued more for its utility rather than for its monetary value. So so we are in transition at the moment. That's why I call the book The Great Transition. You know, the funny thing is that when I when I gave the title of the book, then I Googled it and, I, and there were a hundred books with the name The Great Transition. Uh, so we're all trying to say that there's something that happens in society which is a great transition from here to there, uh, except that mine is uh, the great transition that is facilitated by finance. It's the personalization of finance that is going to define how entire society is going to hold together, um, you know, going to be defined. The danger around this could also be an extreme rise of narcissism. And I think the canary in the coal mine is looking out at what's going on in the social sphere, the idea of influencers um, and that whole narrative. And you said something that I think is just, I want to pause and and maybe wrap up on this thought here. It's how we look at wealth. What, what is wealth? I've been thinking a lot about this myself, um, and I've you know I've been in the, the industry now for twenty one years. Wealth, maybe it's five dimensions of wealth. It's kind of been just something floating around in my head. Of course, there is financial wealth, but then there is also physical wealth. There is mental wealth. There is 
relational wealth. And there's more to this, I think, that if we get people to have that conversation, and I'm starting to see some of this within the industry. I just interviewed um, a commercial banker in the United States, and she has grown a TikTok audience uh, as an individual of over a million people. Um, and I said, why do you do this? And she's an immigrant to the U.S. She's Iranian. I said, why do you do this? She said, I want to give people a chance. I want to give people the same chance that I was given. I want to help them. And it's this idea, she's taking everything that she has learned as an attorney, as a, as a commercial banker now, to transfer this knowledge to other people, to provide them with a new perspective, you know, as they're just scrolling through Instagram or TikTok. And, and that right there is helping other people. You know, what does it end up in dollars and cents? What is it, how does it end up on the balance sheet? I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, too early to tell. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we're now talking in all of these intangibles today. So as, as we wrap up, you know, looking at the macro picture, because you you shared, I want to send people away with a positive perspective. How can they place a positive deposit through the work that they're doing into their, their themselves? Maybe it's their team. Maybe it's the organization. Maybe it's the communities that they're serving through the work that they're doing as a financial brand leader. What's one thing that they can do next to continue forward down a positive path? Just in the last two months, I've been to like 12 countries. And I was shocked to see the amount of inflation being generated in a variety of countries as different as Paraguay in uh, South America, Italy in, in, uh, in Europe, uh, Malaysia in, in Southeast Asia. Inflation is creeping up uh, on a whole range of societies uh, that is going to redefine you know, what we're going to hold on to for dear life as wealth mm. you know so yes if you have a house that's wealth uh if you have cash oh my goodness uh, you know it's going to cost like five or ten times more to buy what you bought just last year you know and uh, and it's the result of everything that's happening worldwide with uh, central banks issuing um you know more debt and more currencies and so on and yeah. then there's your friend who's who thinks that she's uh, generating value by, um, you know, by building her own digital presence, as it were. I think that all of us are looking for stability. We are looking for community, and we are looking for trust. Because of technology, finance is becoming increasingly personalized. What that means is that uh, the power is increasingly in the hands of the individual uh, to deal with who he wants to deal with, when he wants to deal with, and, and he can even bypass traditional institutions uh, to, to create those interactions. Now, what the interactions will mean at the end of the day, uh, in terms of livelihood, uh, in terms of stability, um, you know, is still being defined. Uh, but I think that uh, each of us have to uh, as you have to, uh, you know, look after what we consider to be of, uh, you know, of personal value. Uh, in addition to the fact that the individual is becoming empowered to manage his re interactions and relationships. So, managing interactions and relationships do not necessarily mean generate wealth. But if you look after that well, 
um, I think that's the intention and the uh, and the future that we need to build for ourselves. It puts a lot of emphasis and uh, and responsibility on the individual, like never before in civilization. That's where I think within financial services, there's such a tremendous opportunity to provide help, to provide hope, to provide clarity, because the antithesis of clarity is confusion. And when one is living in a continuous state of confusion, that then leads to conflict, that then leads to chaos. And so I recommend for the dear listener, pick up a copy of The Great Transition. The personalization of finance is here. It'll take this conversation, go much deeper. Emmanuel, speaking of conversation, I appreciate the knowledge that you've shared today in our conversation. How can someone just connect with you to continue that conversation, pick up the book? Where can they do that? My blog, emmanueldaniel.com, uh, if you got you got my name right, then it's one word, has everything you need to know about the book. But also on my blog, I've been writing subsequent material, which is uh, thinking that I've been doing as a result of having written this book. So I, I'd say that the first person it transformed was me, uh, you know, that I'm actually, uh, you know, building my own ideas into the future. And just one more point I wanted to make here was that um, the most cruel thing that any government or state can do to its people uh, is to deny digital access uh, to finance. Uh, because, um, you know, that's a prerequisite uh, for generating your own wealth today. You know, and I say this because there are governments around the world that say, oh, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is bad. So we will have to restrict our people from, you know, accessing uh, digital assets in general. Um, you know, when they do that, uh, they're actually blocking, um, you know, their own people from, from, from defining their own future. And that's cruel. And some regulators, even the U.S., uh, have been saying that, you know, we, we need to restrict non-high net worth individuals from high risk investments and so on. Uh, no government in the world has the purview to understand what's high risk and what isn't uh, in the digital world. It's a great point to wrap up on, Emmanuel. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. This has been a lot of fun today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights, along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.